Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Good morning. My name's Susie, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad to be with you all this morning. And for those of you online, I'm so thankful that you've decided to join us today. Um, Mike is visiting his mom in Ohio, and I share that with you to just remember him and her in your prayers. She's having a pretty major surgery this week, so he went up to go and be with her and pray with her and um, just hang out with her for a couple of days. So... Um, and then, and Kevin's actually visiting his mother-in-law. So all the moms this weekend, all the moms are getting attention. So it's good. Um, we are in a series of conversations right, right now called the Upside Down Kingdom, and it's they're based on the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew five through seven. And we're calling it the Upside Down Kingdom because throughout these three chapters, Jesus is talking about and explaining what it means when he announces that the kingdom of heaven has come near. So the the whole gospel of Matthew was written by the apostle Matthew, who is Jewish. And the whole narrative is the story of Jesus's life and ministry. And he's writing it from a very Jewish perspective to a Jewish audience about a Jewish Messiah. And what his whole goal is in 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 the entire narrative is to show the Jewish community, that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been longing for and awaiting, and that he, Jesus, is the fulfillment of all the hopes and dreams of Israel. And that what was promised by the prophets and the law given through Moses, it's all being fulfilled in Jesus. And so he actually uses that term, the kingdom of God has come near five times, and the kingdom of heaven has come near 31 times throughout the whole book. So this is a really important theme throughout the whole book, but it's really centralized in this um, section called the Sermon on the Mount. So what he's doing is he's talking to this crowd that's gathered, and he's saying, Jesus is saying, the kingdom of God is here it's in me, it's now. And so when he invites people to come and follow him, he's saying, come and be a part of this kingdom with me now. And so he begins to gather people and cast this vision for a formation of a certain kind of community, a community of people who are gathered by Jesus and around Jesus, and what it will look like as he, as he unpacks the whole sermon. So if we went back to chapter 4, we're introduced to this crowd that he's gathered, and these are people, all different kinds of people, who were afflicted with various diseases and pains. They were demoniacs and epileptics and paralytics and fishermen and, and manual laborers, and this group of people were known as the people of the land, the people of the earth. And so they, they were not the, the elite crowd. They weren't the um, well-educated crowd. They were really um, a lot of people that, that most people in society would kind of marginalize and shove aside and, and really consider, you know, discardable, expendable, if you will. 
And so these are the people that he gathers, and then along with them come other people who are curious about Jesus and what he has to say. And so he, he goes over, he, he gives them these beatitudes that we went over a couple weeks ago, which are not a list of commands, but more like a description of what it looks like to be a people gathered by Jesus and around Jesus. He gives them an identity and a job description by saying, you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth, and, and this is to show how the church is meant to be visible to the world around us. And so last week, Mike unpacked a really important point that we have to hold on to as we go through the next six weeks in Matthew 5, 17, that, that Jesus didn't come to abolish or nullify the law, but he rather he came to fulfill it. And this is really important. So I just want to tell you that if you're ever in any kind of circles where people are kind of saying, oh, the Old Testament doesn't matter anymore, it's really about the New Testament, that's not true, actually. Jesus came to fulfill everything that was said. Everything is found in him. And so he's, he's coming to actually um, show what it's like to live this way and to embody it. And then we ended with this, um, this Matthew 5.20 where he says, I tell you, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's the setup for the next six weeks. As we go through this section where Jesus takes six case studies that are often called antitheses, that sometimes on the surface it looks like one is canceling the other, but that's not actually what's happening. He takes one heavy command and he puts it next to something that's a little bit lighter or seen as lighter, and what he's doing is he's bringing balance to it and intensifying it and showing what the actual heart and meaning of it is, what God meant through the law, what his heart for people is for the law, and what it looks like to have a heart that's shaped and formed by Jesus in these things. So are you with me so far? So all six of these case studies carry the same phrasing. They start with, you've heard it said, and then Jesus says, but I say to you. And so when you hear a rabbi saying, you've heard it said, you know that he's about to take something and offer his interpretation of it. So in one sense, when he's saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you, he's calling out the scribes and the Pharisees for their surface-level righteousness. So with the heavy command, you've heard it said, do not murder. This is the one that we're going over today. And so he's calling them out for their surface-level obedience that's really just all about behavior modification and obedience to the law, but it lacks the heart of Jesus. And so he's taking this to his disciples, to his followers, and inviting them into a deeper level of righteousness that's more about the heart, a righteousness that's been formed by the love and the presence of Jesus, where our driving motivation is love. And where there's no, and, and without that, what he's saying is, without that, without that being your driving motivation, without your heart actually being taken and formed and shaped by Jesus, you actually don't get to experience the reality of the kingdom of heaven now. This has present implications and future implications, but remember, if you think about in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, his prayer is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So there is a very present reality to what we're talking about here. 
And so as he's not nullifying and abolishing the Old Testament and intensifying it, what he's telling people is not, he's not saying your behavior doesn't matter because, because your behavior does. I mean, these are, he's talking about behavior, but not the kind of behavior that's formulaic, checking the box, surface level, all about behavior. That's not what Jesus is after. He's after the heart. He's after all of us. Now, remember, you might remember that in John 10.10, 10, it says, I came so that you might have life to the full. Jesus wants full, wholehearted living with us. He wants our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. He wants us to love him with all of that. And so with these antitheses, with these two-part um, things, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he's going underneath the behavior and pulling out the heart with all six of these passages. And this is the kind of righteousness that develops, that's formed, that goes further and exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. And each of these case studies are gritty and human and honest, and they're revealing. What they do is they reveal what it is to be human when the kingdom comes and how we actually live into our identity in Jesus, belonging to this community of people that's been gathered by him and around him. And so I want to give you a little bit of warning for next week. It's a little PG-13. It's actually a lot (laughs) PG-13 next week. So um, I told Mike I would slip that in. So we have a great children's program, J-Kids, all the way through um, fifth grade, and then at 11, we have the coffee house. So if you're, if you're here next week, just, you know, prep your kids. Okay, so we're going to dig in today. Are we ready? Okay, so Matthew 5, verse 21 through 26. You have heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Racha, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there, remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. And truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So we're going we're gonna to go through this bit by bit, and then I'm going to give us some things to think about when it comes to anger. And, and, and how this might pertain to us and how we might embody this kind of righteousness and live into our identity and belonging to this kind of community. And then hopefully we'll have some time to breathe and respond and think our thoughts and feel our feelings and give that over to the Lord and, and let him have his way with us. So, Beginning with verse 21, you've heard it said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. This first part, you shall not murder, comes straight out of Exodus 20, 13 from the Ten Commandments. It's the sixth of the Ten Commandments, 
And the word murder is specifically, there's, there's a, a few different words for murder in the Bible, and the, and the word murder here is specifically for the intentional, premeditated taking of one's life. So it doesn't apply to self-defense, killing in wars, um, killing animals, or even accidental manslaughter. So you shall not murder is this heavy command that he places against this lighter command. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to the same judgment as murder. So this echoes uh, Leviticus 19 through 17 that says, don't hate a fellow Israelite in your heart. Rebuke your neighbor, frankly, so you will not share in your guilt. And so it's interesting when you look at this and you think, okay, so if I get mad, I'm going to have the same judgment as someone who murders. And it's hard with our English language. It doesn't always do it justice in terms of what the biblical writers meant with their words that they have and their language that they have. So, so what we know about anger, right? We all know about anger in this room. I'm just going to say, as I was like preparing this message, this is a little side note, I have had so many conversations this week with people who have been angry. And, I, you know... I've gotten in touch with my own anger, and I think we're all a little bit mad. We're all a little bit mad about a lot of things. And so my hope and prayer for us today is that we can, like, kind of get in touch with that and see what God, God has for us in that. But, but anger for us is, like, it's this spontaneous feeling, right? It's a feeling that comes over our mind and our body when our will is thwarted right? But it can also, there's all kinds of anger. There's, there's anger that, that, that happens when we've been wounded, or when there's injustice, or there's oppression over evil in the world, or it could be the byproduct from a, a, a trigger from a childhood wound, right? From the emotional pain of our childhood. And um, it could also come from a very emotionally and spiritually mature response to evil and oppression. And, and we know that Jesus gets angry on more than one occasion as we, as we read the Bible. But when Jesus gets angry, it's, it's never about himself. It's never about things not going his way. It's about other people and the way other people are treated and handled and the obstacles that people place before them to draw near to him. So when the Bible talks about anger, there's usually two words that are used, and one is called thumos, which is like the kind of quick flare-up anger that I feel when there's dishes left in my sink and someone assumes that I'm the one who's going to be cleaning that up for them, right? Yeah. Or when there's like, my kids aren't in this one, so I'm just going to like let it all out. The socks are left like all over the living room, socks. They just take them off and they just throw them in the living room and like dirty socks left around like flares up anger in my heart. But it's the kind of anger that like, it, it goes away really quick. Like you get over it. They show up and they're like, oh, I'm sorry. And then they're all cute and they hug you and it's fine, right? But then there's this other kind of anger that's called orge, and this is a deeper kind of anger, and it's one that's a little harder to move on from. This is the kind of anger that, that might um, result in a grudge that we carry around or that we nurse or that we feed. It sticks around and it's toxic. 
So this is the actual word that he's using in this scripture. This is the kind of anger that um, it, it surfaces when things get triggered. When we haven't dealt with it, it comes to the surface because there's something old that's kind of stuck around that, that we haven't dealt with. And this is the kind of anger that he's talking about. Now, can you put, can you put the um, scripture up there one more time, please, David? Um, I want you to notice some things and like hang on to this for later, but notice how um, he says, if you could go to the next one, he doesn't say anyone who gets angry. He says anyone who is angry, right? So he's not saying it's not okay to get angry. He's saying um, it's, it's someone who is angry, who's characterized by anger, like a really angry person who's given over to anger. Someone that you would kind of think, oh, well, that's a, that's a really angry person, how we experience them. It's whoever's being angry, remaining angry. And then he goes on to unpack it a couple of different ways that reveal the type of anger. So he says, again, anyone who, is, who says to a brother or sister, racha, is answerable to the court. Now you gotta say racha with the like in the back. Like it's actually like part of the definition. It's like comes from like your spit. It's like a real guttural kind of a word. But it's a it's a bad insult. And it's like a borderline cuss word in Aramaic. And it's very derogatory. Um, and it's an expression of contempt. So when you call someone racha, when you say racha to someone, you're saying, I am better than you in whatever thing is being ex expressed here. It's an expression of contempt, of despising someone, of dishonoring someone. It's saying that someone is worthless and good for nothing, or it's one who thinks like a donkey, which we have words for, right? So... Anyone who, who says racha is answerable to the court. So the court would be the Sanhedrin. It would be the highest court in the land. Like that's, that's the severity of, of using that term of contempt. Now, when we have contempt for someone, it's, it's easier to not care for them, right? It's not easier. It's easier to not care if they're hurt, um, if, they're, if they're sick, um, and we further degrade them. Contempt is what happens when we forget that there's another person on the other side of the screen that we're writing a comment to, or the, there's another person with a story and a family and a life on the other end of the phone that we're irritated with or angry with, and, 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 it, and it comes out. Um, now, we wouldn't use that word racha. We would use other words. Like I said, we have other words for one who thinks like a donkey. And then we, there are other words that are normalized, right? Like, ah, oh, sorry, I know there's kids in here. You might have to explain, but like, you idiot. You know, like we would say that pretty easily. You idiot or you dummy. But then it can also go deeper into some really nasty words, right? Some really nasty words of contempt that, that talk about a person's sexuality or their race or, or the choices that they made, especially when we think that their choices are not as good as our choices. It comes out as contempt, and its root is in pride, and it's degrading, right? Dallas Willard says this, that the intent and the effect of con contempt is always to exclude someone, to push them away, to leave them out, and isolate it. This explains why filth, those nastier terms I referred to earlier, is so constantly invoked in expressing contempt and why contempt is so cruel, so serious. 
It breaks the social bond, and more severely than anger, contemptuous actions and attitudes are like a knife in the heart that permanently harms and mutilates people's souls. So think about, like, you know, from the mean girls at the lunch table who say, you can't sit with us, to the signs on doors that say whites only, or Negroes come through the back, or any other version of that that we experience now, right? We all learned that term when we were little, right? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but... Yeah, and may, maybe we said that. I remember saying that. I have a visual of saying that to someone when I was like in fourth grade on the playground. And it's like this protective thing, right? It's, we're putting words to our armor that we're protecting ourselves with. But I bet many of us in this room have been shaped by the words that have been spoken to us. I mean, it could have been by our peers saying something about us, or a parent, or someone who was supposed to protect us, that was supposed to trust us, or or that we were supposed to trust, that was supposed to nurture and protect us. That person spoke something over us when we were young, and it's shaped how we see ourselves and how we interact with the world, right? And that can stir stir up some anger. Or the words that people have used to describe others from different cultures and backgrounds to keep them separated and excluded from full participation in community and society. Proverbs 18.1 says, Out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. The tongue has the power of life and death. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So notice how when Jesus is getting underneath murder and underneath anger, he's going to things that are in our heart that come out in our words. And this is really important. So he takes it a step further, and he adds name-calling to the lighter commands by saying, and anyone, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. I mean, at first glance, with our English, we look at that, and we're like, that's a little harsh. I mean, someone's just acting a fool, and we're going to now I'm going to hell? (laughs) I mean, here's the thing, though. In this culture, in this very, in this Jewish culture in the first century, name-calling was much more serious than we would think it is now. And the way that culture attached such value to people's names, um, to call a person a fool was to go after their personhood. It's to publicly shame them. And in an honor-shame culture, this this is a bigger deal than when we talk about like someone's a fool right now. It was more of a judgment and a tearing down than it is in our culture. So when somebody, when somebody in those days said, you fool, and said it in the context of contempt and persistent anger that Jesus had in mind when he's talking, it was much deeper harm than any kind of anger and contempt alone. A fool was an unwise, ungodly person. And it's especially found all over wisdom literature. It talks about fools and their behavior is often described as folly. And the word fool, it adds this like connotation of immorality and godlessness to idiocy. So Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. This is an example. 
They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. I mean, that's the essence of of what was meant by calling someone a fool. So what Jesus is saying that all three of these carry a present and future judgment to them, even with the term the fires of hell, which is that word hell is Gehenna, and it was an actual place. So when Matthew's recording what Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, said to a very Jewish audience in that time, and he would say the fires of Gehenna, they have a picture in their mind. They know of a place called Gehenna, just south of Jerusalem, that at one time, prior to their existence, it was a place where human sacrifices were made to a god named Molech, and then it was later associated with the place where trash was burned, where all the refuse would go, and there was a constant burning of trash. And so that was the present judgment. Like, if you call someone a fool, you should be, you're just worthy of being thrown in the garbage and burned and all that, with all that other garbage. That's pretty severe. So Dallas Willard again said, to brand someone a fool in this biblical sense was a violation of the soul so devastating of such great harm that as Jesus saw, it would justify consigning the offender to the smoldering garbage dump of human existence, Gehenna. It combines all that is evil and anger as well as in contempt. It is not possible for people with such attitudes towards others to live in the movements of God's kingdom, for they are totally out of harmony with it. So then Jesus gives these two paths out of anger, these two examples of ways that we can deal with our anger and deal with the toxicity that, that can lead to death. And he emphasizes the priority of reconciliation in the kingdom of God. One has to do with our relationship with people within the body of Christ, and then the other one has to do with an adversary or someone outside of the community. So in verse 23, he says, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, and first go and be reconciled to them, and then come back and offer your gift. So where they were in Galilee, they were on this mountain in Galilee, and there's only one altar where you would go and offer your gift, and it was in Jerusalem, which was eight, about 80 miles from where they were. So he's saying, you're going to go to the altar, and you're going to walk 80 miles to go to this place to, to worship and to offer your gift, and then you're there, and you're like, oh. I got into this disagreement with my neighbor, their dog was barking, and I may have thrown chocolate over the fence, and they know it's me, and it's been this, like really awkward, and so I should probably go and deal with this. So he's saying, like, leave, you, leave your gift, the goat that you brought with you to give, or, or the, the one that you bought there, leave it right there, go back 80 miles, go deal with it, and then come back the 80 miles to then offer your gift at the altar. And so what he's saying is, is really important here. What he's saying is that our relationship with one another is directly tied to our relationship with God. How we treat one another, how we, how we um, love one another in our hearts is directly tied to our relationship with God. So if we have anger and hostility with one another, that actually interferes with our worship. And so today, in these moments that we have in the presence of God, if you're, if you're someone who's maybe feeling distant from God, feeling like you can't connect with God, or if we're feeling 
you know, I'm all, the, all the feelings that we feel where there's something between God and us, it's a really great moment to stop and think like, okay, well, where, how are my relationships? Is there a place where I need to extend more forgiveness? Do I need to forgive again? Do I need to make amends? And, and you know, here's the thing. It's not, there's a difference between reconciliation and restoration. So, reconciliation is what we're called to. That's the priority of the kingdom is reconciliation, but that doesn't always mean restoration. Romans 12 says, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with one another because you might go and offer reconciliation. You might go and offer forgiveness to someone, but they may not return it. That's not your responsibility. That's not your work to do. Our work is between us and God, which is vertical and horizontal as far as it depends on us. So first go and then come. And I love, I love this embodied idea of having to walk 80 miles to deal with the anger. Because sometimes to deal with our anger, we have to move a position. We have to move our bodies. We have to get active. We have to go for a run, take a walk, hit a boxing bag. I have one in my basement. You're all welcome. Um, I mean, you know, like we have to do something with our bodies because the, you know, the body keeps a score, right? Like we keep anger. We hold those emotions in our bodies and it makes us sick. So it, it not only leads to death to other people that experience our anger, it can also lead to our own death and our own harm of, of what happens to us physically when we hold on to anger. Verse 25, settle matters quickly with your adversary someone outside of the community who's taking you to court, do it while you're still on the way or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. So in the first century, they had these debt jails and, and debt courts. And so if you had a debt with somebody, if you owed somebody money and you hadn't settled it, they could take you to court and, and then ultimately you could get thrown in jail until that debt was paid. And often people would actually die in jail because they, they couldn't pay the debt. And that's what, they, that's what that means. And so here's the thing. This kind of anger, this kind of anger that he talks about in the first verse we went over is toxic. It's, it's like a cancer. And Jesus is saying it has to be dealt with, and it has to be dealt with quickly. Don't let it get a hold of you. Don't let it wrap around your heart and take root and, and, and grow stuff out of it. Don't let it take over your life. So the Bible is it's very much in touch with the human emotion of anger. And it doesn't judge the emotion of anger. It speaks to what we do with anger and the control we let it have over our lives. Jesus, remember, Jesus didn't say, don't get angry, because he got angry himself, right? I know all of you are thinking about, well, Jesus got angry, and then there's this righteous anger, right? Yeah, he got angry, and he even uses the language that he just told us not to use when he's talking about the scribes and the Pharisees. But righteous anger, here's the thing. I know for all of us, we, when we want to rationalize our anger, we think about our anger, we think, well, that's a righteous anger, and we think about what righteous anger is. Well, all of us think our anger is righteous in the moment that we're feeling it. I mean, that's a thing, right? We all think our, righteous is, our anger is righteous in the moment because the other, and the other person is deserving of our wrath because we've been wronged or someone's been wronged. And, and it might be, but 
But what are we to do with that anger? Because most of the time, I don't think our right, our anger is righteous. Like, if, if our anger is righteous, then we're mad at the things that Jesus was mad at. And then we do the things that Jesus did in his anger. Like in Mark 3, when he was in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and the man with the withered hand came, and all the scribes and Pharisees were like, is he going to heal? Like, we're going to get him if he heals. And it says Jesus got angry, and he healed the man. In Mark 10, people were bringing kids to, their kids to Jesus for him to lay hands on them and pray and bless them. And the disciples were getting annoyed and, and were, were trying to get them away from Jesus. And Jesus was indignant, and he was mad because they were keeping them away from him. They were keeping, they were creating roadblocks for people to come and be near to God. That's the kind of stuff he got mad at. And what did he do? He scooped up those kids and he held them and he blessed them. He got angry at the religious establishment more than anybody. And he got angry when people created obstacles and pushed people aside. So I grew up um, largely influenced by an honor-shame culture because I grew up in a, in a Persian household that has Muslim roots. And so, and then I became a Christian in high school. And so those two cultural experiences really impressed upon me that anger is a bad thing. So I, I grew up, and maybe you did too, um, with this notion that like, if I'm angry, that's wrong, that the anger in itself is sinful, that I just, it's not good to be angry, especially as a woman. Because, you know, little girls are made of sugar and spice and everything nice, right? So it's not nice when we get angry. And, and I'm not trying to be sexist here, but like angry women get called different names than angry men, Right? So if you're, if you're a woman and if you have like any kind of authority or whatever and you get angry, how you get angry really kind of reflects a lot of things and people assume a lot of things. And so, you know, we're taught these scriptures from very surfacey behavior modification perspectives, right? Like, you know, women are, are, are really taught, and this is in the Bible, so it's, it's true, but how we're taught the scripture, for example, that that our beauty should come from our inner selves, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Your girl has never had a gentle and quiet spirit. Okay? I mean, I, and I know that this is not just women. I know that men are brought up to also, in a lot of ways, suppress emotion and, and, and maybe sadness and particularly angry, anger. But we're just, we're brought up to kind of judge our anger right? Or brought up to judge it as bad. And so in high school, I was a very angry, I was a very angry teenager. I had a lot of things to be angry about. Um, and I kind of dealt with it a little bit in college. And then as I became a mom, it, it resurfaced. Children have a way of resurfacing all the things, right? So I was an angry mom. In fact, I was part of a Facebook group called No More Angry Mommy. <laughs> um, but all my resentment about my childhood and all my anger that hadn't been dealt with showed up sideways a lot in my parenting. And there's nothing more shameful feeling than a mom who's angry at her kids. I mean, I talk to moms all the time who just lose it with their kids, and that shame is thick, and it's really hard. And so 
<clears throat> I'm here to tell you that like it's a t it's a good invitation to differentiate between shame and godly sorrow and allow God to work his way through your anger. Anger is said to be a secondary emotion. It usually masks something deeper. Um, anger is, is said to be a signal worth listening to. Our anger might be a message that we're being hurt, that our rights are being violated, or simply that something's not right. But what anger does is it also reveals things to us. It reveals our loss. It reveals our sadness, our pain, and our hurt, right? Um, so I want us to just kind of, as, as, as I kind of move us towards closing, and, and I want us to kind of sit with that a little bit and kind of get, get in touch with how you're feeling about this. Because like I said, I think a, a lot of us have a little bit of anger in us. And where it's coming from and what it's revealing to us is important to pay attention to. Um, we've been praying over, we, we pray over the prayers that, that you guys write on the stations every week. And just this last week, there was someone who, who wrote this and they didn't put their name. I don't know who it is, but, but it really spoke to a lot of this. The, the prayer was, if I let go of my anger, I have to feel the heartbreak and I'm scared to shatter. I mean, sometimes our anger protects us, right? And that's, sometimes that's a good thing, but if we let it be our protection, then it, it turns into something more toxic. Um, a lot of times our anger is based on fear, right? And Master Yoda said, fear is the path to the dark side. Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. That's consistent with Jesus. <laughs> Chip Dodd in the Voice of the Heart said, anger is possibly the most important feeling we experience as emotional and spiritual beings because it is the first step to authentic living. It shows us our yearning and hunger for life. It's informative. It exposes the substance, desires, and commitments of our hearts. Anger shows us what we care about. It exposes what we value and our willingness to work for what we value. So I say all that to say, like, it's important to sit with our anger because that is the first step in dealing with our anger and not letting it take root in our heart and not letting the overflow of what's happening inside us with our anger come out into words and things we say and the way we treat and relate to other people and, uh, and ultimately gets in the way of our relationship with God and enjoying being a part of the kingdom. Paul even says in Ephesians 4, in your anger do not sin, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. That's another, that's another verse that we're kind of taught sometimes on the surface level, like don't let the sun go down on your anger, like don't be mad when you go to bed, right? Was anyone ever taught that? I was taught that, like don't be mad, don't go to bed mad. Well, sometimes I'm mad and I need a minute, right? But that's not, he's not saying don't, you know, he's not saying forgive and forget by the time you go to bed at night. Because that's just not always a human possibility. He's actually pulling from Psalm 4 when he says that, which says, tremble and in your anger do not sin. When you're on your beds, search your heart and be silent. 
So that very scripture that he's quoting, you know, like, it gives you something to do when you go to bed, when the sun goes down, right? There's an opportunity there. There's an invitation there to deal with your anger. Sometimes it needs to happen with God first before it happens with other people. But here's the other thing. Anger lately, I feel like, has become a virtue. Like, there's just a lot of anger everywhere, and who you're angry at determines the group or tribe that you're part of. And people are seeing Christians devour each other in their anger because even Christians are divided and the church is divided on how they feel about all the things that we've already talked about a bazillion times, right? But what the, what the world needs from the church is a more prophetic voice of love and reconciliation. A prophetic voice that knows how to speak out the anger and name the anger and name the injustices and name the things that are hurting our society and our world, but is also not afraid to deal with it appropriately the way that Jesus would have us deal with it. So he gives us permission to get angry. James 1.19 says, Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger doesn't produce the righteousness God desires. Human anger does not produce the righteousness that Jesus was talking about on the Sermon on the Mount, which he desires for us to have that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And so what happens is if we tend to our anger in a way that seeks to, we, we, we want to tend to our anger in a way that, that, that seeks to rid ourselves of the anger, to do what James said, right? But sometimes we tend to our anger like it's something that we're growing in our backyard, right? That's good. I'm not, never mind. <laughs> you know what I mean. So the question to ask is, you know, is there a place for anger? Yes, there is. It's an emotion that we share with Jesus. It's part of our image bearing, right? It's what we do with our anger and how we deal with it that is what Jesus is after. Deal with it quickly. Pursue reconciliation. Those are the priorities, right? Is my anger being directed at the things that Jesus was angry about? Or is it just the people I think are stupid idiots that I'm feeling some kind of contempt towards, that I think I'm better than, that I know more about, that I, the way I see things is right and the way they see it is wrong? Is it that or is it the things that Jesus was angry about? And what is it doing for me? What is it doing for the relationships I'm in? How is it affecting my peace with God? These are the questions I want us to sit with today. So as, as the band comes up um, and we, we kind of sit with those questions and we move towards a time of response, I want, I want us to take our time and, and really, like, you know, be aware of how you're feeling in your body right now. Um, be aware of, of the questions that came up in your mind. And um, Sam's going to be actually leading the discussion in the, in the um, collaborative space that so has really fabulous, great, comfy furniture in it now, in case you haven't noticed. It's a, it's a vibe. It's a vibe. So go in there at 11 if you want to talk about this stuff further. But, but I, I want us to sit in this moment that we have, in the presence of God, I want us to sit with him and be really aware of where we are. Because I think all of us have a little bit of anger in us. And so so these questions like, where is it? Where is it coming from? Where do I feel it in my body? What is it directed to? 
What is it revealing? What is my anger telling me? What is it informing me of? And then maybe you can make your way over to the stations and, and we have the white pieces of paper and, and maybe as you pray, um, we would love to pray with you in this and be in this together because we as the church want to move towards being a prophetic voice in the community that displays the salt and light of Jesus to the world. But maybe you write down on your piece of paper like what you're so mad about who you're mad at, we won't call them. You know, like what, how can we pray for you? What relationships can we pray for you in? Who do you need to make amends with? What do you need to make that happen? What are you holding on to? Do you feel shame about your anger? And where is that coming from? Um, up on the screen, you'll see um, Betsy Eckel, who works in Jake Kids. She's an amazing artist. And she provided this painting for us that she made. And for those of you who um, like to have your visual senses participate in your worship, it's actually back there at that station. So you can go to that station if, if, if you're someone who likes to take a moment with art while you're worshiping. But this is, she, she painted this over the course of five years and it came out of a place where she was dealing with her anger. And, th and this is what she says about it. This piece was somewhat of a companion for the last five years, time spent layering pages of hymns and stacking colors, pointing to the subterranean work in my heart. My anger became an invitation to voice other feelings that were more elusive at first glance. I'm grateful for the permission that I have found from Jesus to name and bring my hurt voice my anger, and still be deeply kept and held by God. I am not too much for him. My anger, my loss, my scars, and my love are all welcome at his table. And we believe that. We believe that God welcomes all of that to the table. And so God, as we, as we come to you now, as we sit in your presence would you reveal to us what you have for us today? Help us do our work with you in this space. Show us the things that make us mad, that make you mad. Show us the things that just make us mad that we just have to deal with in a different way. And God, we all come in this room with different stories, different experiences that have shaped us but we all wanna be shaped by you and your love and your ways. May it be so.